Big data is, it's a weapon. It's like nuclear power. As it becomes more powerful, it also becomes more dangerous. And it is incumbent upon people to appreciate what could go right or wrong when they're drawing conclusions based on analysis of big data. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. today is a professor, journalist, speaker, and author. He holds a PhD in public policy from the University of Chicago, a master's in public affairs from Princeton University, and a BA from Dartmouth College. He's currently a senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College, where he's been a member of the faculty since 2012, teaching courses on education policy, healthcare, tax policy, income inequality, and other related topics. He's known for his engaging teaching style, which has led to him being selected as one of Dartmouth's 10 best professors by the graduating classes 2015, 2016, and 2017. In 2003, he published his first book, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science, which is an accessible and entertaining introduction to economics for the layperson. Written in a clear, concise, informative, and witty style, it's been selected as one of the 100 best business books of all time and translated into 13 languages, including Arabic and Hebrew. His best-selling book, Naked Money, a revealing look at what it is and why it matters, shows us how our banking and monetary system should work in ideal situations. He's also the author of books such as Ten and a Half Things No Commencement Speaker Has Ever Said, The Centrist Manifesto, and The Rationing. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, the New York Times best-selling author of Naked Statistics, Dr. Charles J. Whelan. Dr. Whelan, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate having you here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Talk to us a bit about your story. You've got quite an interesting background for an author of a book on statistics. So how did you become so interested in statistics? I think it's fair to say that none of, them, none of my books was particularly well-planned. They all arose out of a perceived need where I was filling a vacuum. You, you pointed out that Naked Economics was my first book. I did not set out to write that book. I set out looking for someone else to write it. I was teaching a class on economics to journalists with a little statistics as well. I assumed that somebody had already written a book that wasn't a textbook, but still elucidated why we should care about economics, particularly journalists. I called my agent who was trying to sell a book on the gambling industry, which you will notice I have never written. She said, that book doesn't exist. You're going to write it. We're going to call it Economics for Poets, and I'm going to read it. And that was the beginning of a series of books where I thought somebody had already done this. They hadn't in the case of statistics. 
I literally tore a statistics ch- uh, textbook in half because I thought that it was so opaque and so bizarrely disconnected from all the real world problems. Naked statistics, like naked economics, kind of filled that void for people who need to understand why this matters, how the data can be abused, and not necessarily what the difference between alpha and sigma is. So you mentioned you had to tear open a statistics book. Was there? Oh, I tore I tore it in half. Tore it in half. I tore it in half. (laughs) And it was really expensive, so I didn't throw it away. I had to tape it back up. No, I ripped it in half out of frustration. So was there a lot of self-study involved in learning statistics? And, you know, do you have any tips for our listeners on how to learn something effectively? This is a great question. There was a lot of self-study, but in the course of my self-study, I realized why some of the things that have been covered in my formal study were covered. And I actually was somewhat frustrated that when they were covered formally, and I had taken a lot of statistics classes, why at the time nobody connected the dots and said, okay, the reason we want to know this is because it illuminates this problem or that phenomenon, or here are three examples of how this procedure has been abused or used for good. So I found myself through self-study, understanding more the formal study and simultaneously becoming frustrated at the way some of that formal study had been presented. Talk about illuminating it was really such a well-written book because, you know, me being a graduate student in statistics myself, it's one thing to be exposed to all of the formulae and all of the uh, kind of structure and rigor behind it. It was interesting with your book to see it applied in different real world scenarios. How is it that, you know, you're able to write a book on statistics that is so much more interesting, engaging and informative than uh, anything I've ever come across in grad school? I think there are three reasons. One is I'm a policy person, not a statistics person. In fact, when The Economist magazine reviewed the book, the first line said something like, Charles Whelan is not a statistics expert, which is why this book is so good. The, re- the reason they said that is that people who love statistics love the methodology, they love the numbers, and they kind of assume everybody else is as adroit with the math as they are, and they kind of gloss over things that for the rest of us are not up. The second reason is what I am really good at is public policy. I care about poverty. I care about budget deficits. I care about the process for dealing with coronavirus virus. Obviously, statistics and data are really, really important to all of those things. So every time I approach statistics, it's with an eye towards solving those problems. So, you know, I start with why, and then I back into how, whereas I think too often it starts and ends with how, which is not inherently interesting, at least not to me. And then the last point is I'm just not very good at math. I mean, I'm not terrible, but as a result, when someone does something mathematically or tells you, you know, why a statistics formula is what it is, I have to kind of stop and translate that out of math into something that's more intuitive, at which point I can then write about it in a way that other people see it as intuitive as well. And you've done an excellent job with it. Really, really enjoy your book. I do want to take some time now to get into your other book. A lot of data scientists, we spend a lot of our time studying data structures, algorithm, coding, heavy, quantitatively rigorous stuff. Not Unfortunately, not a lot of time on economics. And economics is pretty quantitatively rigorous in its own right. But just for our listeners out there who have their heads kind of stuck in in the uh, machine learning world, data science world, can you give us your description of what economics is and you know, kind of make it accessible for data scientists out there? If you were to do it in one sentence, and I think this is how Gary Becker at the University of Chicago explained it. He had won the Nobel Prize. He was my price theory instructor. He said, it's the economics of, economics is how we allocate scarce resources. We don't have enough of 
anything that we need. We're seeing that obviously right now with personal protective gear and ventilators and a vaccine and so on. Some people are going to get those things. Some some people are not. That is, of course, always true. Some people have private airplanes. Most people don't have private airplanes. Some people have enough food to eat. Some people don't have enough food to eat. So the question is, who gets what we have in essentially a planned economy? Most of the people listening are too young to remember the Soviet Union, but things were not allocated by price. So if there weren't enough pork chops, then the people who got the pork chops were the ones who were lined up in front of the butcher first. You queued up, which is one way of allocating scarce resources. We do it differently, which is to say the butcher sets a price. Those who are willing to pay the price get the pork chops. If it turns out they sell out, the next time he or she decides to raise the price or maybe raises the price in the moment, things for which there is a surplus, we put on sale. I mean, all these things are quite intuitive. But at the end of the day, it's about how we allocate resources. And then in the process, you can add layers of complexity, which is that process also creates very powerful incentives. And if you or I create a vaccine for COVID-19 right now, we're going to be super rich. And you know what? We should be super rich if we come up with a vaccine for COVID-19. On the other hand, and I think this is a really, really important point, markets reward supply and demand. They, they reward something that is scarce relative to demand. That is an amoral judgment. So for example, we're seeing right now, particularly in the United States, that people who are essential workers, we are saying literally, like, we cannot function without you, are being paid less than people who are sitting at home doing relatively nothing, making a lot more money. So markets are not a value judgment. They don't tell us what's right. They just tell us what's going to happen when people act on their own preferences. How does the study or application of economics, how is it going to be different or the same now in the era of big data, maybe more so than it was 50 years ago? In some ways, it won't be different. The basic trade-offs are always there. I mean, if you think about something as fundamental and important as pollution, 50 years ago, the pollution problem was water quality. The reason we had a water quality problem is that people just dump things in our rivers and our lake. You, you may or may not be familiar with the impetus for the American Clean Water Act, which, you know, there are people of good mind advocating for years to clean up our rivers and lakes, but it didn't become politically palatable until the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught on fire. The river caught on fire. Now that's the signal to the rest of the country. Like, huh, I think we have a water quality problem when a river quite catches on fire. Now, what would economists say? Well, the reason you have a water quality problem is that people don't fully internalize the costs of their behavior. If you dump paint into a river, it poisons maybe hundreds of thousands of people. You may be one of those persons, but you only bear a tiny fraction of the cost. So you're going to behave in a way that is inimical to the interests of everybody else. Environmental problems have always been that, an externality. Now you fast forward to climate change, it's a different pollutant, carbon, but it's the same problem. So in some ways, nothing changed, which is why I think economics is so important. If you understand the basics, I can fast forward you to 2080. I don't know what the problems are going to be, but I suspect the Nikon 1 textbook is still going to be pretty darn important. Now, what changes? Well, big data, and again, statistics is just patterns. It's just pattern recognition. And big data allows us to see more patterns more cheaply. So Again, the the underlying statistics won't change, but our purchase on the data will. If you think about crime, for example, we've always had crime data. It's just that they were in the basement of the police station in a filing cabinet. So nobody could take all those filing cabinets, add them together and look for, for patterns. Now we can. So again, it's kind of the old married to the new in a way that if we use it right, can give us insight into things that we care a lot about. Big data, machine learning, and AI are becoming more and more ubiquitous in nearly every aspect of commerce. 
what's the implication of this on you know Adam Smith's invisible hand? I don't think it changes Adam Smith's invisible hand much at all in the sense that the fundamental incentive hasn't changed at all. He, you know, he said it wasn't the butcher or the baker out of their good intentions that fed us. That's not going to change again. You know, whoever's making the vaccine could be a very generous person who cares a lot about humanity or they could be the most avaricious, selfish person you've ever met. They're both going to work really hard on a vaccine. So I don't think that changes much at all. I think what changes with big data is that like all statistics, it's a powerful weapon. And I use the, the word weapon quite deliberately. It is like fire or a sharp knife or dynamite which is used properly, it really can be put to great effect. Used improperly, you can do some enormous damage. I think it's probably more important than ever that people appreciate the use and misuse of big data because anybody can do the analysis. You know, something that used to be the province of somebody who had access to a mainframe computer, you can now probably run on your phone. The question is, do you have the understanding of what those patterns are and, and what the erroneous conclusions might be? And if not, then you're going to come up with some very dangerous conclusions. Tongue-in-cheek question here, basically. On the title of one of your other books, uh, Naked Money. What is money and why does it matter? Money is one of the strangest things you are ever going to encounter. If I, you know, if we were doing video rather than a podcast, I would show you the hundred trillion dollar bill that I have on my desk from Zimbabwe. Now that I bought it on eBay for about 20 bucks. Most of that I think was shipping and novelty value. Money is not the paper bill in your pocket. It turns out that that paper bill can be used as money, but money is really an agreement between people that something has value. If I show up and I rake your lawn, I don't know, do people rake lawns in Canada? I assume they do. I come and I rake the leaves. And I say, you know what? It took me two hours. You owe me two hours worth of labor. And you say happily, of course. You know, and you write something down, you know, this is worth two hours of labor. All right, well, that could be money. If I then, you know, it snows heavily here in New Hampshire, just like in Canada, and I say, boy, I don't really want to shovel my driveway, but I've got this certificate worth two hours of labor and I give it to a neighbor, not to you, I give it to a neighbor. And I say, you know what? I rake the lawn and this is, you know, if you take this back to the guy whose lawn I rake, he'll do two hours for you. We've created money, right? So it is, it tends to serve three different purposes. It's a store of value. So in this case, it's that two hours of labor. It's a medium of exchange. For example, if I wanted to buy pork chops, it gets a little more complicated, but I might go to the butcher and say, hey, you want your, your yard rake? Here's two hours worth of raking. Give me the pork chops, right? And so whether it's gold or diamonds or currency or those, or, or uh, Bitcoin, you can, you can shop and do things like that. Uh, and then the last is it tends to be a unit of account. This is one where our two hours of raking kind of falls down. It tends to be the way that people think about the world. So if I say, boy, I, you know, I'll give you uh, one used Camry, 11 hours of raking, uh, and three bags of dog food for something, you're going to be like, well, how much is that worth? You're going to be doing all these calculations. Whereas if I say, um, you know, it's going to be 113 Canadian dollars, you have, you know, exactly how much that is worth. Uh, and so you can use lots of different things to serve those three purposes, but anything that doesn't do those three, th three things fairly well will probably lapse as a source of money. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists.
somebody I'm, I'm a big fan of, Naval Ravikant. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Pretty much what he says is that you know, money is uh, essentially an IOU. Like, okay, thank you. We owe you something in the future for the work that you did in the past. It's a little IOU. Let's let's call that money. It's uh, exactly what it is, and you can see why it collapses. If people lose faith, right? You move out of a neighborhood. Nobody really wants something saying that you're going to rake my lawn for two hours. And you know, if I move to a different town, I say, oh, you know, this guy in Canada will come rake. You're like, who is he? So a lot of money does come down to credibility. We can talk about Bitcoin and those kinds of things, but most current modern currencies, you know, historically they derived their value from the fact that they could be redeemed for something that did have intrinsic worth. You could show up and people would give you gold. And therefore, that was what I didn't have to trust as long as I thought I could make, get my gold. Now, it turns out if the, if the bank is fraudulent or isn't keeping its accounts on the level, then you might not be able to get your, your gold. So even under that standard, trust was involved. Nowadays, you take your dollars to the Bank of Canada or to the Federal Reserve, you'll get a whole lot of nothing. I mean, you can bang on the door. I'm not even sure they're going to let you in. They're not redeemable for anything. But why do they have value? Well, because they're, they're years and years in which those central banks and others around the world have worked very, very hard to maintain the purchasing power of those pieces of paper. That is not a negligible accomplishment. You know, due to our current global situation, every place I go to now, really only the grocery store, no longer accepts paper physical currency. They're instead shifting to like contactless forms of payment. What, if any, implication does this have for the future of money? Relatively little. If you think about it, in some ways, it's not any different than switching from dollars and cents to writing checks. I mean, writing checks is just a paper version of the digital transfer that you're doing now. They both say, hey, transfer money from my account to his account. The unit of account hasn't changed at all. Our central banks are still defining the dollar, whether it's going through the ether, whether it's coming out of my pocket, whether I'm writing on a check. They're still maintaining the unit of account. All we've changed is kind of the means by which we keep track of those accounts. We can either do it physically by stacks of dollars in my basement. We can do it on paper with checks where the bank just kind of takes out a ledger and moves money from my account to your account when they get the check. Or we can do it digitally, which is just really a fancier version of the check. That doesn't change at all. And we should point out that those kinds of digital transactions are very different than digital currencies like Bitcoin. Because when you take your debit card to the grocery store and they swipe it, it's still in dollars and the federal government is still overseeing that currency in those transactions and the security and everything else. Bitcoin is an entirely different unit of account, which bounces around in value all the time, by the way. It makes it relatively poor for doing commerce. That is an entirely different currency, not just a different way of transacting with the currency that we've already had. How do you think the future will be impacted by like these digital currencies like you're mentioning? Uh, what implications will this have for society? I'm told by people who know more than I do about this that the, the underlying technology, the blockchain technology is very valuable because it allows for the sharing of information without a central mediator. So you can bypass, for example, the bank or the entity. If you're trying to transfer money to your family in El Salvador, you used to have to go to somebody who would take 2%. Then they would wire something to the bank in El Salvador. They might take another commission there. Even a credit card is just a different form of a short-term loan. You go pay by credit card. The, the store then reaches out to, the, to Visa or to MasterCard. They mediate the transaction. My understanding is the blockchain gets rid of that mediator, which has all kinds of potential implications, not least that you don't have to pay a fee to somebody to deal with it. It can be distributed in ways that are lower cost, higher trust, and so on. In terms of the future 
of currencies based on blockchain, I've yet to see a profound need for it. Other than in places like Venezuela, where your currency may be collapsing and you have no faith in the government, there are extreme cases where just like transferring your assets into gold, it might make sense to transfer them into some electronic digital currency. But for the rest of us, what Bitcoin and others offer is the ability to make large transfers undetected with no record across international boundaries. Well, who, who likes to do that? <laughs> Mostly uh, drug kingpins and arms merchants and terrorists and kidnappers. And for the rest of us, I don't really care if I buy something abroad, if there's a record. I'd like to pay a lower fee. Uh, but other than that, I, I, I think digital currencies, other than for some nefarious characters, are a solution in search of a problem. Quite an interesting thing this this money is. I think it hands down probably the greatest technology invented. Yuval Noah Harari, I think in his book Sapiens, mentioned something like intersubjective reality or something like that. We all just agree that this thing is a valuable, but entirely between our imaginations, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yes, and if you think about why it's valuable, it's not because the money itself has great value. And for, for the most part, you can't eat it. It can't keep you warm. If you're burning it, that's a really bad sign. What's valuable is human commerce. The ability to specialize in something, become, become really good at it, and then trade with other people who've become really good at something else, and you're now much better off because I have more meat, you have more econ textbooks and so on. Money is what facilitates that specialization. And then trust in money is what allows specialization among strangers, which is perhaps the greatest innovation of all, that tens of thousands of people who don't know each other can somehow engage in something as complicated and frankly amazing as a modern economy. So I want to jump into some topics that you covered in your book, Naked Statistics. Start off with the question about how we can use statistics to make business work better, make our lives more comfortable, more productive, and improve what the government does and doesn't do, especially now in this post-COVID world. But if you just think about some of the most important questions that we're asking right now, so what is the fatality rate from COVID? This is a fundamental question. If it's a benign disease, then maybe we're overreacting. If it's as fatal as the Spanish flu, then we're not reacting enough. We can't know how fatal it is until we can figure out how many people have gotten it without knowing it and have recovered because you can't know the fatality rate without my, my colleagues always say, what's the denominator? What's the denominator? So if we're looking at how many people die of the disease who present at hospital, well, then you're totally missing it. Those are the people who are the, the sickest. You know, if we say, boy, taking a bath is really dangerous because everybody who showed up in the emergency room had taken a bath had a broken limb. Like, well, okay, but remember, there are a lot of people who took baths who didn't show up here. So if we're going to try and figure out how, taking, how dangerous taking a bath is, we need to know the denominator. So, I mean, that's a simple but powerful, powerful example of how data collection, that's not a very complicated thing, by the way. It's, you know, how many people die over how many have it, but it is a crucial piece of data to understanding what's going on. And then, of course, you can just go deeper in terms of rates of transmission and breaking out the rates of transmission by age and geography and indoors and outdoors. So I would say that statistics are at the core of understanding everything related to COVID. There's the science of the disease, which is important, but then epidemiology, which is bringing statistics to disease, is every bit as important. 
So you talk about in your book too, the different types of biases that uh, we can commit when we're performing any type of statistical analysis. In the scenario you just described, which form of bias do you think would be most, one that we should be most wary of? I think we should always be wary of selection bias, which is when the sample that you're seeing is not representative of the true population. In this case, the extreme example is the people who show up at hospitals. They are the sickest. Uh, We may, for example, find that the disease, I think we are finding that it is more dangerous for men than for women. Maybe there's an underlying biological difference there, or it could be that men are just more stubborn about seeking medical help, and the virus actually is invariant between the two. And in that case, we want to tease out the difference in how they respond. I would say, you know, I don't know about Canada, but here in the United States, we've obviously got a robust political debate going on. We've got a presidential election coming up in November. And I think one of the things that really skews our politics is because we have sorted ourselves as Americans around other people who tend to share our political views. We are all living selection bias. We've kind of selected news that reinforces our views, neighbors who tell us what we want to think, social media who kind of repeat our brilliant thoughts. And so selection bias in politics is quite dangerous because we are really unaware of how the whole country is interpreting different different events. Curious your thoughts as to the election and how social distancing is going to impact our elections. Like, is Are we going to go digital at all in the future now that we're in this COVID world or how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I do have a professional interest in this in that uh, I wrote the Centrist Manifesto, but w- what grew out of that is this larger effort to re-empower the American political middle, which as most observers know is kind of being beaten down by the extremes. As part of that, I was the founder of a group called Unite America, and we are proponents of a number of process reforms to help the system work better. So, for example, you you may or may not be familiar with the term gerrymandering, which is the mechanism by which state legislatures draw the congressional boundaries. And of course, they can draw them in ways that are electorally favorable to whichever party controls power. That's where you get these crazy looking congressional boundaries in the United States. So we're working on processes to put an end to that, independent redistricting commissions and so on. But one of our reforms that we were proposing before COVID-19 is vote from home. It doesn't have to be vote by mail. You could probably also come up with a secure electronic way. But the key insight is that even before this came along, it is really important to make it easier for people to vote. Colorado has already done that. Again, long before COVID-19, they established a system whereby people were automatically registered when they got a driver's license, unless they didn't want to be, and then they could opt out. They automatically were sent a ballot for every election, which they could return by mail if they wanted, or they could bring that ballot to a polling station, or they could bring it to any other polling station. That turns out that I don't think it favors Republicans or Democrats. That, of course, has been been the debate here. But it does favor young people because they're more likely to vote. It favors independents uh, and those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, my view is that broadening the electorate is a good thing and that vote by mail, which is proven secure, is an effective way of doing that. A few more questions based on naked statistics. I want to start with why are humans so bad at appreciating and conceptualizing probabilities? Humans are hardwired to live in caves and run from snakes <laughs> in another, and fire. In other words, uh, you know, our brains have very successfully evolved. The reason you and I are alive is because our relatives 
you know, when a snake slithered through the grass, didn't say, hey, you know, let's lean over and take this home and see whether this is poisonous or not. People who did that aren't with us anymore. Their genes were eliminated. You know, hey, this is fire. What happens if I take you? Know, no, don't do that. Those are immediate, palpable threats. As a result, we're less good at more abstract, long-term threats. Climate change, for example, is the opposite of fire. If, if, if your garage is on fire, you're going to run immediately. Climate change is like, yeah, it doesn't seem that much different than yesterday. I don't think there's a risk here. So the brain has developed weaknesses as, as well as strengths. It turns out that abstract concepts like risk are also prone to those kinds of mistakes for assorted reasons. I think behavioral economics is a major step forward and people who are interested can read more deeply about why we make these mistakes. But for example, many people are afraid to fly. Almost nobody's afraid to drive. In the United States, I think driving something like, depending how you measure, a thousand times more dangerous than flying. My understanding is there are a couple of reasons that people are afraid to fly. One is they read in the newspaper about plane crashes. They almost never read about car crashes, even though in the United States, 40 or 50,000 people a year are dying in cars and probably only some years, no plane crashes and some years, several hundred people are dying. But those are what you read about. So that gets anchored. The other is I think there's some sense of control. We have a sense that when we're driving, we're in control, even though from a statistical standpoint, you'd rather have the pilot flying a plane that's, that's regulated heavily by lots of governments. But that combination of control, what we're exposed to and other things explains we're just not really good at appreciating risks. And then there's some things that combine two of them. So, for example, things like smoking and sun exposure, which are quite devastatingly dangerous, are long-term harms that you don't read about very often. And therefore, you're more likely to be worried about being abducted by ISIS or something like that, where there's almost no chance that that's actually going to happen. Um, so there's a lot of reason for it. But the short one is that our brains just aren't as good as they should be at dealing with modern risks and the tools by which we use to evaluate those risks. So for data scientists who are working with vast quantities of data, why is it important that we cultivate an intuition for what probabilities represent? I think it's essential to making better decision makers out of our electorate. So just today, for example, I read about somebody who was trying to quantify the harm being done by COVID-19 in terms of plane crashes. I can't remember the exact number, but it was you know nine or 12 or 13 plane crashes a day. And again, if you're in a place that's not directly affected or you don't know somebody who's, who's died, when someone says, boy, 100,000 people have died in the United States, it's just so abstract that it doesn't directly affect you. So by putting it in terms that people do understand the tragedy of a plane crash, maybe you can motivate action. The same is true with something like malaria which kills hundreds of thousands of people every year around the globe, but it's not really a first world problem. And again, others have tried to emphasize in ways that are understandable to our reptilian brain, why we should care about this. But if we don't do it, then we can't expect the electorate to support things such as efforts to ameliorate climate change if they don't appreciate in the present that long-term risk. Why shouldn't we buy the extended warranty on the $99 printer? Usually, so the extended warranty is just a kind of insurance. It's no different than life insurance or car insurance. You're just insuring a different product over some term. You should always buy insurance if the outcome you're insuring against is something that you cannot tolerate, either because of your willingness to take risk or because it's going to destroy your life. So 
Why do I insure my home? Because if the house burns down, that's the amount of money that I don't have sitting around and that would change the life of my family. Do I think my house is going to burn down? No, I do not. I had some concerns last night because my daughter had a bonfire in the backyard, but that's, that's the exception. Uh, for the most part, why would you buy life insurance? If you think your family won't be able to send the kids to college or won't be able to survive without you, you know, I've canceled my life insurance. Why? Because my kids are now almost out of college. My wife has a good job. You know, if I go, I don't plan on it, but you know, they don't need it. So it's not worth the premium. It was really important when I was 30. All right, so back to the extended warranties. If the toaster oven breaks, your $89 toaster oven, is this going to change your life? And I hope the answer is no. You know, you don't need to insure against it. And then we take the second piece of it. Remember, insurance companies, including whoever's offering you the extended warranty, are for-profit companies. They've run the numbers. So they think whatever they're going to have to pay out if things break is less than what they're going to take in. So we know that all insurance tends to be a bad bet, but some insurance is worth taking a bad bet if it protects against something you can't tolerate. And of course, insuring the toaster oven is a bad bet, and it's not one that protects against something that you can't tolerate. Once upon a time, I used to be an actuary, and uh, I did warranty pricing, uh, just coming up with premiums for warranties. Um, yeah, don't buy them. There's <laughs> no, a reason they hawk them so aggressively at the counter. It's yeah. not because they think they're doing a great job for you. Kind of shifting gears here, I want to get your perspective on this. A lot of up-and-coming data scientists and just data scientists in general, they tend to focus primarily on, on hard technical skills, rightfully so. It's exceedingly important for the work that we do. But, you know, they think that's, that is what's going to separate them from the rest of the world, the rest of the competition. So what are some soft skills that data scientists are missing that you think are really going to help separate them from the other data scientists out there? I am a huge proponent of the liberal arts, which is to say that even if you are very technically oriented, you have got to have an awareness of sociology, psychology, great literature, and the like. And the reason is that the hard questions, things like income inequality and why people are poor and why humans do what they do, are wrapped around everything that on its face might seem like just a data issue. And if you don't have a greater appreciation for those big questions, you're going to miss some things. So for example, I heard a commentator say something that was probably a little snarky about Facebook and in particular about its founder and she who dropped out of college to found Facebook. And her point was, well, maybe he should have stayed in college at Harvard because then he would have had a greater appreciation for Russian motivation and how fake news can affect society. And there are all these other big issues that Facebook has stepped into. Now, I, I think the comment's unfair because I'm not sure another year at Harvard is going to solve these hard, hard problems. But I think the point is nonetheless valid, which is, wow, if you're going to be as powerful and prevalent as Facebook, you better be thinking long and hard about freedom of speech and hate speech and why hate speech exists and international relations and what the Russians want. Because if you don't, then you can be the greatest coder in the world and you are completely blind to what you're the, you're the guy carrying the dynamite around saying, hey, isn't this great? Look what happens when you light the fuse, right? You, you haven't read the safety label. I'll give you a perfect example of one of, of a policy problem where I think data can be really helpful or make things worse. And that is bail reform. So I don't know, in Canada, if you commit a crime, I don't know if you have bail, but in the United States, if it's a really serious crime, they just send you to jail and 
until your trial comes up. But if it's a more minor offense and they don't think you're going to flee before trial, then you post some, some money and then you come back to your trial. Well, what's important here is figuring out who's going to flee and who might commit another serious crime while they're on bail. And we have data on that, right? We've got decades and decades of records. And the question is, can we use those records to create a more humane bail system? Because you really don't want to hold someone in jail who doesn't have to be held in jail. Because remember, they haven't been found guilty yet. It's inhumane. It's harsh. They have to quit their job. And of course, they might be found innocent. So let's look at the data and see who should get bail or not. And maybe, by the way, that'll liberate us from some of the racial stereotypes that have been perpetrated. So if we find, for example, that people of color are less likely to get bail for similar crimes, then we can, the data will set us free. All right, well, that's good. But let's suppose that while people are on bail, there's certain groups who law enforcement are likely to, more likely to prey on. So we say, well, this group, they seem to commit more crimes while they're on bail than somebody else. Well, if the way we're policing isn't fair, then our data may actually just be reflecting a problem, not illuminating it. And so we may say, well, don't give those folks bail when in fact they are equally deserving. So if your data reflects some underlying problem, then any model you build from those data will just embed it more firmly in cement. So, you know, on the other hand, maybe that's not the case and we can come up with a more humane bail system, but you gotta be really careful about the system that generated those data before you make conclusions using it. Your statistical methods, by the way, may be terrific, but this isn't about statistics. This is about law enforcement and the behaviors that generate the data. That's why I think it's super important to have an awareness of all the different types of biases that you can commit. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. I think you might have a crystal ball somewhere because back in 2019, you wrote a fiction book, The Rationing, and uh, it's going through your Twitter. In May 2019, you tweeted that for the first time in my writing and political life, I just got to make stuff up. Right. Sure, I wasn't really making stuff up. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward, March 2020, you tweeted, I thought I was writing a dystopian fiction. Apparently not. So talk to us about your book, The Rationing. Uh, can you give our listeners a synopsis of the book and maybe draw parallels between the fiction you wrote and the reality that we're experiencing today? Yes. Well, I'll describe the book. The comparison to reality will become quite obvious as I give a synopsis. This is a book, a novel, my first fiction that takes place in the near future. I think it's in the late 2020s. A pandemic has broken out. There's a virus that's not fully understood. As a result of the pandemic, there's a panic. The political powers, it's, it's United States focused, although it becomes global very quickly. The president and his immediate staff are trying to deal with this first in secret, later it becomes public. And then of course it becomes a political battle the president's opponents seek to seize on this as a way to defeat him politically. And then it becomes an international challenge as China and the United States go head to head over the pandemic. So that's all the fiction, ostensibly. Um, it just happened to be largely what happened a year after it was published. 
Um, and we, we can talk about kind of how I stumbled upon that, but yes, that is the short answer. And, and it's really the, the, the world racing to deal with a virus before the virus dispatches with the population. Yeah, definitely. Let's, let's talk about how you, how you stumbled upon this and, and you know, how you came up with this, the concept of this book. It's interesting. The title is The Rationing, because what I wanted to elucidate is some of the trade-offs that are inherent to economics. What we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, that you're never going to have enough of everything. And I thought, all right, well, how, what, what kind of situation, what kind of fictional situation would throw that into stark contrast and make it really clear? I figured, oh, all right, well, if you had a pandemic, and you only had a finite amount of something you needed. Now, because this book takes place in the near future, we do have kind of a miracle antibiotic called Dormagen. Unfortunately, we don't have that right now. That's the only thing that I wish were not fiction. But there's not enough of it in the book for reasons that have to do with the plot. So the explicit question is, who gets the Dormagen? And there's a chapter in the book that really is the kernel of it, which is, okay, do we give it to old people? Do we give it to prisoners? Do we give it to people who've been in prison? Because somebody's going to die, and oh, we're going to have to explicitly decide who that is. So I just wanted people to understand that life involves those kinds of trade-offs. The pandemic, I think, was just kind of dumb luck, although I will say that I've studied enough public policy to know that people have been warning about something like this for since I was with The Economist, which is the late 90s. Many people said, and this thread is not off the table, that it might be antibiotic resistant tuberculosis. It was the kind of antibiotic resistance piece that many experts thought would be more likely to generate something really dangerous. But in any event, this is one of those termites in the basement kind of problems like climate change that we're just not willing to act on until it shows up as a garage fire. So I, I figured that would be, I like viruses. I think they're just fascinating. That was really a setup for a larger discussion of human nature, of rationing, of our political system, partisanship. There's a, a several fake news strands that play out in the novel, kind of all the things that I thought would happen if there were a pandemic, and sadly, most of them have happened. Which aspect of human nature do you think from your fiction has shown itself to become a reality with our current situation? I think it's the political tribalism. And this also is where my work with United America and the Centrist Manifesto intersects with what we're watching in terms of the political response and the book, The Rationing. And this also has an evolutionary biology piece to it, which is, okay, how do you survive? We survive by running from snakes, by not touching fire, and by distrusting strangers, unfortunately. I mean, the reality is if you're living in a band of 40 people, you trust each other, and somebody shows up whom you've never met, you can ask a lot of questions or you can react violently. So there is kind of this inner distrust. Now, I think many historians and economists would say one of society's greatest achievements is the ability to trust a wider and wider circle of people for reasons we've already talked about. Then you enjoy all the benefits. First of all, you're not constantly at war, but also you get to enjoy the products of their productivity and so on. But deep in the reptilian brain is some distrust of people who don't look like us, right? For whatever reason. And so I think in this country, I can't speak for Canada, that tribalism, it's less, although sadly it hasn't disappeared, about race and ethnicity. That's still there. But a lot of it has evolved to political identification. So I think what you're seeing now is people retreating to their political tribes, regardless of what happens, but it has certainly happened with our response to COVID-19. Now, that has been exacerbated by some underlying realities of the virus, which is it has hit blue states worse than red states. So it's not just 
that Republicans and Democrats are looking at this through their own lens, which they are, or that they're tuning on to separate news sources, which they are. It's also that what they're seeing outside their doors is different in response in terms of the virus. So all of those things lead to the hyper-partisan reaction that we're seeing, which obviously doesn't serve us when we're dealing with a public health problem, not the one that's inherently political. Thank you so much. That was very, very insightful. So we've got the last question here before I jump into the lightning round. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? I'm going to use my prerogative and say two things. <laughs> one is, I think that there are always going to be trade-offs. I actually walked in and saw one of my fellow economists as I was sitting down to do this podcast, and he said, you know, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And I think if you think about hard problems as trade-offs, then you're going to get more traction. It's just like dealing with hard diseases. You know, no doctor, no oncologist says, yeah, here's the miracle cure for this really bad cancer. He or she says, look, this is a bad disease here's a pill or medicine, here are the 17 side effects, but we think that still it's better off. Like that's how we deal with all of our private problems. So understand public trade-offs. Think about policy challenges in terms of trade-offs and and appreciate why different people might put different weight on those different trade-offs. And the second is something we've talked about, but I'll just make it more explicit, is that the big data is, it's a weapon. It's like nuclear power. And that as it becomes more powerful, it also becomes more dangerous, and it is incumbent upon people to appreciate what could go right or wrong when they're drawing conclusions based on analysis of big data. What, say, academic topic or research area a data scientist should spend some time researching up on? I think every academic worth his or her salt or data scientist or coder should read fiction. What fiction does is illuminate the great questions and distill human nature in ways that we cannot even approximate with nonfiction, right? Or we can do in such narrow ways. If you read great novels, what characterizes them as great novels is that they've just gotten to some eternal truth through fiction. I read a short story that was written, I think, before 1920 called The Garden Party. And it was just the best distillation of income inequality that I've read in a long time. It's about a little girl who goes to visit the home of one of the servants who works in their giant home on the day that they're planning this elaborate garden party. And it just nails the fundamental unfairness of a market economy. And again, that's 100 years old. And so I would say read faith. You want to be a more complete person and a more effective researcher or academic or business person, read fiction. So do you have any uh, book recommendations for our audience? Um, well, other than the rationing, uh, you know, I, think <laughs> uh, I think they want to start there. I would, you know, I'm a big Somerset mom fan. He's somebody who writes a lot about human nature. If you read his short stories, they're set in the South Pacific. A lot of them, they deal with colonialism and clashes that are rooted in racism and other things. And boy, they really push to the surface, often in a surprising or any entertaining way some human truths. And his novels, I think, get to the, to the same. Just storytelling in general is an important skill, I think, for anybody working in a data-related profession. Um, that's something that they should possess, right? So you kind of pick that up through reading fiction as well. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you so much. So what are the 11th and 12th things that no commencement speaker has ever said? I'm going to paraphrase I think this is Richard Branson's line. Uh, Anybody who thinks that money will make you happy has never been rich. (laughs) I think there are other strands in the book that 
make the point that you got to find a journey and self-fulfillment away from money, but I would probably put a sharper point on it that, and that there are, and particularly for the audience that speech was addressed to, which is an Ivy League audience who are relatively privileged and are going to have a lot of career choices, that you have the luxury for the most part of not having to work to feed your family. You're going to have some choice about your avocation and that the nature of the work and whether you enjoy it or not is going to determine your sense of self-worth more than the, the balance sheet. Um, and then I, get, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with money, maybe because I lifted out of the speech. And the last one, which I tell my son all the time, because he wants to be an entrepreneur. If you want to get rich, stop worrying about money. Like Steve Jobs was not like, he didn't say, boy, I really want a fancy car. What can I do to get a fancy car? The corollary, if that's kind of 11.1 or 12.1, would be stop thinking about making technology better and start thinking about solving people's problems, right? I mean, one of my pet peeves is every time some software that I generally like gets re-engineered in a way that the people writing the software love it, but I'm the guy using it. And I don't really care about that. I'm the writer. This is a, this is word processing software. So uh, stop making it elegant for yourself. And again, any great entrepreneur is somebody who just found it. If you think about naked economics, we don't think of authors as, as entrepreneurs. That was entrepreneurial. That was, look, there's a need Write the book for people who don't currently have access to that book. So stop thinking about what you're doing and look around the world and see what's missing. And that will both lead you to be a more effective entrepreneur and probably make you richer too. Dig into that just a little bit more. Um, first of all, uh, if you can give us a synopsis of what 10 and a half things no commencement speaker has ever said, the, the kind of moral of the story from that, if you could share that with us. It was based on a speech that I gave at Dartmouth that was originally called Five Things No Commencement Speaker Has Ever Said. And it was quite deliberate. I went to Dartmouth. So here I was, 20 some years later, giving a speech that I had heard. The conceit of the speech was, okay, if somebody, while I was sitting on the grass that day listening to the speech, what do I wish? 20 some years later that somebody had told me. So that like when I sat down to write it, and in particular, I wanted to enumerate things that commencement speakers don't typically say. So what unexpected would I have wanted to hear? From there, it just came out, you know, with some things, many of which are supported by data. So number one, I think, was your time in fraternity basements was not wasted, which I can assure you most commencement speakers are not saying. And the universe, the college president was sitting behind me and you could see him shift uncomfortably in his seat because there's a lot of bad things that go on in the fraternities. But the, the larger point was, look, happiness, we know this based on research, happiness depends on your social network, on having meaningful friends, connections with other people. And I was just using fraternities as a metaphor for that. It could be the chess club. It could be hiking outdoors. It could be anything that connects you with people with whom you have something in common. Do not undervalue that. And that is an important part of college. So, you know, that was, and we do, by the way, have the happiness research that shows that. So that was, that was number one. I think one of the other ones was marry somebody who's smarter than you are. I married someone who was a classmate and I said, look, it's never going to be easier because at commencement, the people who are Phi Beta Kappa, the top 10%, they have red ribbons on their gowns. Like it will never be easier to find that people are really smart than tomorrow. Um, and my wife was Phi Beta Kappa. I was not. I'm like, look, it worked for me. Uh, so, you know, that was another one. I think, and again, you know, having a meaningful partner is really important in terms of happiness. The data are quite clear on that. In terms of the way my wife and I have worked career-wise, we've each supported the other person at times of risk. You know, she was able to quit a software job and start her own software services company. I was able to get my PhD, which is a long slog without income. Later on, she was able to go back and get her teaching license. 
So it just feels like we've been able to do yin and yang. Uh, so that was another one. But they were kind of in that spirit, things that were mildly surprising, but usually supported by either life experience, data, or both. Follow-up question to that, based on what you are saying earlier about entrepreneurship and how if you're going to become an entrepreneur, think more about solving a problem instead of getting rich. What are some qualities that you know, an entrepreneur can start cultivating or a would-be entrepreneur could start cultivating within themselves to, to make that happen. I think one is intellectual curiosity, just understanding how the world works, why people do what they do. The second is clearly passion. If you look at the early tech entrepreneurs, it's because they care deeply about something, the personal computer in the case of Bill Gates, computing married to design and a consumer-friendly facing product in the case of Steve Jobs. I mean, these weren't somebody sitting around saying, how can I get rich? These were deep-seated passions married to lots of personality traits that are associated with sex success. So, and then I think also some competence in an area of study. You know, so I couldn't have written an economics book if I didn't have a PhD in public policy and hadn't spent a lot of time writing. So you also got to be pretty good at something. But I think that that marriage of capacity with intellectual interests, with passion for some subject is usually at the heart of what leads to some entrepreneurial breakthrough. So if we can get a magic telephone that allowed us to contact 20-year-old Charlie, what would you tell him? First, first, tell us what 20-year-old Charlie was up to and what, would you, what advice would you give him to, to get him through whatever he was going through at that moment? I think first thing I would say is, yes, you will become a writer. Just stick with it. My mother, who is a wonderful person, but not always the most uh, willing to challenge the status quo, used to tell me, like, stop writing in your journal and focus on your schoolwork, right? Because that was clearly a passion that had evolved. By the way, I've kept a journal ever since I was 19, 18, 17. To this day, there are volumes and volumes. So really, that was my passion. And she just couldn't understand how I was going to turn that into a professional career. So I think I, I tell the 20-year-old Charlie, like, you know, you're, you're right here. Stick with it. Don't let them beat it out of you. And then I think the other one I, thing I would say is continue to buck the trend when you think it makes sense. Most people, I hung, my classmates mostly went on to do consulting and finance. There was nobody in my immediate peer circle who got a PhD. My parents didn't know anybody with a PhD. They thought it was somewhere between a curiosity and an insane thing to do. In fact, it was exactly what was important to set me on a career path where I could be a writer and have deep substantive knowledge of something. So I think at age 20, I had this sense that people were running in a direction that I didn't want to run. And there was a herd mentality. And a lot of people telling me, like, get with the herd. It, it does take some courage, I think, to, to step aside and say, no, I want to go over that direction. So I think I would encourage that 20-year-old to, to stick by my guns. Some really good advice even today. I mean, I think like for, for me, for example, like, you know, I'm Indian male, grew up in the immigrant family. There's only three career choices, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And now it's it's like the, the internet has opened up the space of possible career choices in such a way that my parents can't even fathom it. Right. You know, I remember I, I lived in Chicago for a while, I went to grad school there and, um, my dad came to visit me and he's just baffled by all these buildings and all these condos. He's like, what do all these people do? 
He's like, they can't all be lawyers, doctors, or engineers, right? So, so I that's, kind of a story in that regard. So yeah, yeah. Students coming to ask for advice, right? So I had a young Indian male, so first generation, his parents had immigrated. And they, you know, their career choices were about what you elucidated, right? You know, they're trying to decide whether I should be a lawyer, engineer, doctor. And I said, all right, well, like, what do you want to do? And he said, I really want to be a playwright. I thought, oh, dear God, like, I can only imagine. Um, I said, well, then you should try and be a playwright. But I, I imagine him going back and telling his parents, oh, Professor Wheelan said I should try and be a playwright and imagine them storming my office. Uh, but, you know, you got you to gotta do what you want. And I think the other thing is, if at some point lots of evidence suggests you're not very good at playwriting, then you got to pivot. Right. I mean, there is, you know, that's what the, the, the standard commencement speech. If you stick, follow your heart, you'll be successful. Well, I'm never going to be an NBA basketball player. Like that's just not in the car. So there is a certain amount of kind of being self-aware, but if you've got the passion and the rudiments of the skill, then you certainly won't become a playwright if you go to law school, or at least if you become a lawyer. What motivates you? I really like what I do. And at present, I'm writing a lot of fiction. There have been so many points in my life where I've said to myself, you know, is this crazy? Am I wasting my time at this? It began, for example, you know, even getting a PhD, like this is so long. All my friends are in business school. That's two years and you know exactly when you're done. And I'm four years or five years and it's indeterminate. You're not done until you're your thesis advisors say you're done, which is a strange kind of uncertainty. And, you know, my parents are like, why are you getting a PhD again? So, Later on, when I was trying to get a job with The Economist, I spent a year reaching out to them, sending them articles and faxes and calling periodically. And you're thinking like, am I nuts here? And then, of course, things fall in my direction. Fast forward a long way to the novel. I wrote the novel before I had any hope of publishing it. And I remember sitting here in this desk, copy editing and thinking like, is this crazy? Like, why, why am I spending so much time on fiction? So I think what motivates me is because I like doing it and I think it's good and it's consistent with my long-term interests. So I think there's some kind of inner compass that tells me what I should spend my time on. Right now I'm writing short stories, which are even less commercial than novels, but I feel like I've got things to say. So I, I would describe myself as a very intrinsically, almost exclusively intrinsically motivated person. I actually left one job and went to another job. And the first job was like, well, you know, can we pay you more? And I I thought about like, no, actually the place I'm going is going to pay me less. How do you even respond to that? Oh, we'll pay you even less than they're paying. Like, like, it just didn't, I I probably should have asked for more, but it just wasn't, it it just felt like a better fit. I mean, what you just said resonated with me so much. I was having this exact conversation with my wife yesterday. It's like, what the hell am I doing with this podcast? Am I crazy spending every waking hour outside of my full-time job? Like I'm up at 4 a.m. editing the podcast, transcribing it, mixing it, putting it, like, what am I doing? Like literally exactly what you're saying. Am I crazy? Like what am I doing? You know, often when things don't work, there's some residual value there that turns out to be a game changer as well. So when I was in grad school, I got in my mind that I really wanted to write screenplays. I probably wrote like nine or 10 screenplays. I did actually sell one. It was never made into a movie, but suffice it to say, I'm not a screenwriter right now. So that was a lot of time and effort. But you know, when I sat down to write the novel, I was really good at dialogue. And in fact, I just sold a short story and part of the appeal was like, wow, this is really snappy dialogue. And in fact, the reviews of the novel said that, you know, part of what makes the book work is to say, well, a screenplay is all dialogue, right? That's pretty much all the screenwriter puts in. The rest of it is going to be picked up by the camera. So what are you like 25 years later, this skill that I refined that seemed to be a dead end at the time turns out to not have been a dead end at all. 
Uh, it's very, very inspiring. So what song do you have on repeat right now? Uh, you know, uh, I've got, was it Gloria Naylor, I Will Survive? I've been listening to that. I, I do a lot of bike riding and I've got this playlist and that's the one that I've added most recently to. I think it's kind of a catchy tune. It's nostalgic from when I grew up, but as we're all doing quarantine and the like, you know, I Will Survive has even more resonance than it did in the past. Dr. Whelan, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Yes. So uh, my uh, website is nakedeconomics.com. That's kind of a landing page for all the other things going on in my life. I think therationing.com also will be forwarded there. They can find that book anywhere. But yeah, I tend to pop up, as you know, in lots of different domains. Well, thank you so, so much for popping up in my domain. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck with the podcast, with parenting, you know, which is, I will say, parenthetically a humbling process. Uh, but good luck. It was, it was fun. Thank you.